So I would have teams go out to the sororities with literally dresses, right? They would have Diane and Seven and Rock and Republic and Joe's Jeans, and I would go out to the sorority with like a trunk of clothes, and we would sell it. Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour show. We're here today with Adam Bernhard, who was the founder of Hot Look and now is working, I'm sure, on several different projects. He's an entrepreneur here in Los Angeles and we're excited to have you on here, Adam. Thank you. Nice to be here. So Adam, why don't we kind of, you know, ask you some, you know, an interesting question just to kind of get your juices flowing and, you know, I want to see, you know, where your, your mind is at in terms of creativity. So we're trying to do this fun thing with all the folks that we're interviewing. If I were to ask you right now, uh, you know, to to create your own ice cream flavor, something I don't know, different, exotic. What what would it be? What flavor would it be? Uh, interesting question. I think uh, I would go for a caramel mint. Why is that? Simple and fresh. Okay. Okay. I like Not it. Not too complicated. I like it. So, Adam, did you grow up in Los Angeles? I grew up ten minutes from where we're sitting right now. I grew up in a place called Cheviot Hills. Tell us about your, your childhood. Like, what was, what was Adam like as a kid? Yeah. So, I, uh, I was always entrepreneurial. So, primarily, I spent as much time as I could in the streets in my neighborhood. Um, you know, my, the deal with my mom was, if it was too dark to see me, I needed to be in the house, right? <laughs> so, that was the deal. And back in the day, you could play in the street still in your neighborhood, right? So, all the kids in the neighborhood were in the streets and... When I was in, I used to walk to school. I preferred walking to school. I'd go there early in the morning, and I would run laps with my friend Scott. Um, early riser still. And so sixth grade was probably my first business venture. I, uh, my grandmother, uh, she's a Long Island uh, yenta. She used to give me like $5 here and $5 there, and I would save it. And then uh, I went to this corner store and I bought packs of Bubblicious. And there were five pieces to the pack. And I bought it freshen up. I think it was another one, the one where you bite it and the, mm-hmm. the yeah. goo squeezes in your mouth. Um, and, uh, and I bought a huge bag full of packs of gum. And I waited for the book drive at school. And then I knew all the kids were going to have cash. So I took all the gum with me to school. And I laid it out on my desk and I gave like my three, four friends each a piece of gum. So they were like the, you know, my, my, uh, tastemakers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then all the other kids wanted gum. So I was started selling gum at school for a quarter a piece and I was buying them for a quarter a pack. So I was making 125% on my money. Right. Were, so, were you selling more gum than they were selling books? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, and, uh, and I remember coming home at night and I had all this money and my mom asked me where I got the money. I said, I sold gum at school today. And she, she said, I, I mean, you can't, you can't just go to school and start selling things. And she like looked at my money. I was like, you can't take my money. Right. So I, I was always very entrepreneurial when I was uh, 15. I had two jobs. I was working at Pizza Pizza mm-hmm. on Pico Boulevard over here, 
and I was working at um, what was that gym called? It was like twenty, it became twenty four hour fitness. It was mm-hmm. called something else before. It was over here on Pico, next to what used to be Super Drugs on Pico and um, Roxbury. Got it. What was it like? Was it like an independent gym, <coughs> like a different name? Yeah, I forget what it was called. But then it became twenty four hour fitness. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've always been working. So, obviously, early on, you realized that you have this entrepreneurial spirit, which maybe at the time you didn't know was an entrepreneurial spirit. You didn't really know what it was going to turn into. But what did these several different, you know, early, you know, jobs or, you know, money making ventures, what did that lead to, you know, when you were, you know, after high school? I think what all of this leads to and what I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about is discipline. So if you're trying to make money, you need to be disciplined. If you are starting your own business, you need to be disciplined, right? You need to be disciplined with what, how you're doing it and then what you're doing with the money. And I think those things taught me that. And when I went to, when you go to college, as you guys know, it's the first time you're on your own mm-hmm. and you have to make decisions for yourself that at the time, don't seem like they're going to be lifelong decisions, but you realize, and you guys will see, you know, decisions that you make when you're 18 are decisions that can help or hurt you as you move through your life, right? Where you went to school, what you did with your time, did you focus on getting good grades, were you messing around with your friends, and the the even to the partner that you choose to mm-hmm. date, mm-hmm. right? So... I think all of those things at an early age led me to have discipline on myself, which, you know, as every partner I've had in my life, you know, romantic partner said is that you could be a little less stringent and a little less concerned with organization. But it, it is something I think you see in a lot of very good entrepreneurs. Organization is very important. So what was your um, college days uh, like what, what was it like? Like, I mean, did you? What did you study? What were you involved with? What were you doing? So when I first came out of high school, I, I didn't want to go to college. So I got a job working actually over here on Rodeo at a retail store. Which one was it? It was called Ton Sir Ton. Ton Sir Ton. Yeah. It was like a uh, like a sweatsuit, like high end sweatsuits. I worked at Fred Siegel when gotcha. I, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. from there I moved. I went to Fred Siegel, but I worked mm-hmm. at Ton Sertan. I was so it was like a Lululemon back then. Not Lululemon, but call it like a nice Adidas. They were nice sweatsuits. They were so fashion. like athleisure. Yeah, what is today right in style? People were wearing sweatsuits like you could right, wear right. at night now, right? right? So, um, and. and I quickly realized after a few months of that that I, I needed a college education. So I hustled over and just contacted um, Cal State Northridge. They have a, a really good undergraduate business school mm-hmm. and went and saw them and said, hey, listen, you know, this is my grades. This is my stuff. I really want to go to school here. And they accepted me for um, the second semester. Spring, admit. Yeah. So went to Northridge, commuted moved out of my house right I, my mom said listen if you're gonna i'll pay for college we didn't have a lot of money she's like i'll pay for college y- you can live here you want to move out you pay for it so got a job working in a restaurant as a waiter 
and went to college during the day. Adam, you bring up your mom, like, you know, what was your family's uh, opinion or, you know, what was their advice to you after high school when you decided to kind of forego college for that time being? Is it something that they were supportive of? So my mom, uh, my dad left when I was eight and my mom had to go to work. She never worked before. And my mom started five different businesses. Wow. So she's an entrepreneur. So I learned all that kind of watching her start these companies, Mm -hmm. you know, some more successful than Mm -hmm. others. And she was all for, she really wanted me to go to college. My brother was at UCLA. He's kind of the smart one in the family. He went to law school. He's a lawyer. Um, And I was different than him, Mm -hmm. right? So she encouraged me to get an education and she's a tough love old Jew. So she said, you know, look, you, you want to not go to college? Okay, get a job. You're not going to live here and not work. Just bum it out. Yeah, but which was never going to be something I would do. Yeah. But, and then her thing was, I'll pay for college. And you can live here as long as you want. And uh, I quickly realized like, that, that wasn't going to be for me. I needed the education. So you're in college, you're working at a restaurant to pay the bills, um, and then you graduate? Uh, I have or, one class and one lab left. And you left? I left. You left college? I didn't Why? really uh, really know. I, I, I thought I had two classes left. When we were acquired, when Hotlook was acquired by Nordstrom, um, my head of PR said, hey, we have to do a press release and we're going to say you attended Northridge. Mm-hmm. And I said, you can say whatever you want. I just sold my company for <laughs> $280 million. I don't care what you say, right? So yeah. she said, um, okay, well, I'm going to talk to them. Like, do you really have two classes? I said, yeah. She said, I'm going to find out. I'm going to help you get your degree. And so she contacted the school and found out I actually only have one class and one lab to get my degree. But I was done. Yeah. I got what I needed to do, and I, I was already working. I actually took a year and traveled. But Okay, then, so you left to travel. Was I left and I traveled. I, took, okay. I left to travel for a year. I ended up eking out almost two, right? A year and a half, two. <laughs> so you're traveling. What happens then? When do you kind of come back to you know, your, your, your day-to-day, and, and what do you start doing? So, um, one of my good friends, her husband, uh, ran a studio here in, in LA, a big studio. He ran Warner Brothers and he said, uh, she said, I, I got you a job. And I said, well, I, I don't need a job. I'm having a good time. She said, yeah, I see that you're having a good time. It's time for you to go to work. So she got me a job working or he got me a job, uh, working on, uh, a movie as a production assistant. Um, movie called Disclosure with uh, Demi Moore and yeah. Michael Douglas and I really liked it so I kind of I stayed in the movie business for a little bit and uh, I worked on that movie um, and then I went to work for a company called Mel Paso which is um, Clint Eastwood's company mm. and I ended up working f- there for two years there was only like four of us working in the company so it was really intimate I got a real good knowledge of how to make movies um, I worked there when we made the Bridges of Madison County, um, and and that was great, great education. You know, worked with one of the great all time movie makers. So, and Adam, around what year is this? This is um, ninety one. Okay, ninety two. So almost two decades, a little over two decades ago. So you are now in this film space. Um, or, you know, 
producing production space. Is that something that you thought you would continue with? And, you know, clearly you didn't, but what, what led to the next move for you? Funny enough, um, I moved on from there and went to work at this management firm. I was managing talent. I was working at a little firm called Goldmiller, which sounds is, kind of familiar. Yeah, they they they're 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 now called I forget what it's called, but it's um, they merged with maybe Three Arts or somebody like Got that. You. I forget what it's called. So we were a very small boutique firm, but we managed all of the people from In Living Color. So we managed Jim Carrey, all the Wayans brothers, Jennifer Lopez, and you know. Judd Apatow and all of the big guys. Jimmy Miller still, I think, manages Judd Apatow and Eric Gold. You know, managed all the Wayne brothers, and together they managed Jim Carrey. So I and Jennifer Lopez was just a fly girl, and so we, I saw kind of the making of right, and and I realized that that wasn't going to be a career path for me. M- managing talent wasn't what I wanted to do in life. Why is that? I mean, it's like adult babysitting. <laughs> so you're, yeah. I mean, growing up, like even till that point, like you just it sounds like you've just been experimenting with with any opportunity that kind of came your way. Um, did you have your like focus or I guess sight set on some sort of path, or was it just like kind of I'm going to take any opportunity I can get um, and see see you know see if I should ride this wave or try something different? Yeah, I think I was young. I was in my early twenties. I was having a really good time. And in those days, L.A. was very, um, there was one industry here. So there was the entertainment industry and there wasn't much else, right? It's not like it is today, as we were talking earlier. It wasn't so entrepreneurial. Um, It was very one note. So I was in the, the note. And I was at a very high level, right? So I saw an opportunity there. I thought, you know, I had a lot of friends in the space. And I thought, this could be interesting. I like making movies. It's sexy. You know, there's money. And when I looked around, I realized that there's a few guys who were really making a lot of money. And there was a lot of guys living off expense accounts. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I didn't want optics to be driving my life. I didn't want, you know, driving a company car, company meals, and two kids in private school and choking on my bank account, right? So, I, and, and, and I really am entrepreneurial, right? I wanted to do something that was going to be different and interesting. And, and as, you know, I, I say to, to people, young guys that, that, uh, that I, I coach, it was always about the money, but it was never really about the money. And if all you care about is making money, just move to Wall Street and work, you know, move to New York and work on Wall Street because you can make an enormous amount of money. But if you're looking to do something interesting, to build a company and kind of change the way things are done and yeah. that's exciting to you, well, then start a company. But if it's just about the money, get, you so, know. So did you leave that, that movie business to start a company? I did. I left there and um, there was a little pizzeria here in Beverly Hills uh, called Mulberry Street Pizza that was owned by a guy named Richie Palmer. And uh, I liked what he was doing. And I thought, you know, well, why don't I like, roll these out into to malls? And uh, my stepdad was in the mall business. Um, and so he got me some leases for some pizzerias and food courts. 
and I raised some capital from some friends. And I was off to the races with a business called Richie's Neighborhood Pizza. And, uh, and I built 13 of them in, in mall food courts. And uh, yeah, then we had 9-11 and there was a mall scare. And I had all these pizzerias and malls and people weren't going to malls. And so we ended up having to, to sell the business and get out with, you know, barely our T-shirt. Um, but I learned a lot. It was my first real business. Adam, I know a lot of people are skeptical of, you know, starting a business when they don't consider themselves, you know, an expert in that domain. You know, the, you know, if, for example, I love eating, I love cooking, I'm not a chef, uh, but, you know, I, I'm scared to start my own, you know, restaurant or my own. Why? Well, that's a great question, but, you know, and eventually I figured out that why was because I thought I didn't know uh, more than someone I considered an expert until I realized that no one is really an expert. Well, what, that's not true. Well, 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 no one, no one is really, <laughs> no one is really an expert when they start. Uh, but, right. but what did Shake Shack had a big right head right. start? Well, well, yeah, they had, they had, Danny, they had Danny, 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 was, Danny Meyer, had an yeah. amazing restaurant tour. Right, right. So. right. But when did you kind of realize and take that leap of faith and say, okay, like you know, I'm I'm going to start this pizzeria or you know I'm going to grow this pizzeria, but I'm not necessarily a chef or, you know, a pizza maker. Well, that's the good thing about being broke. There's no downside. There was no downside. I, I was in my 20s. And if you fail, as long as you learn something, then you didn't fail. And anybody who can't, comes out of the gate in their first business is a monster success. They're an anomaly. It doesn't usually happen. Every entrepreneur you ever talk to will tell you about the three businesses that failed. And as long as you learn something from those and you don't burn any bridges and you do it the right way and you're honorable, people know, even when you're taking other people's money, you let them know what the risks are. You keep a, a, a high level of visibility for them so they can see what you're doing and that you're doing the right thing and that you're trying hard and you're, you're busting your butt and going to work every day. And, and leaving it on the field. And you will find success. It might not be the first business, but I think I, I, I say to young entrepreneurs, just get in the game, right? Because a business plan is just a piece of paper. A, a strong financial model will give you way more than a bunch of words on a piece of paper of what the business is going to be because the business will change. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, so you're, you know, you ran the pizzeria for a while and you sold it. So now you've, I mean, although it might, it wasn't for a lot of money, like you sold a business and you kind of have well, this. Well, we took it apart. You took it apart. We okay. took it apart. Um, you know, this is kind of like on the brink of, you know, we're kind of approaching or just after recession. Um, what's going on with, with, with you? Like at the moment, what are you, what are you thinking? Now? No, at that, at that time. Oh, at that time. I, it wasn't really a recession at that point, right? It, it was just the bubble, right? So the bubble burst. You had 9-11. You know, you, you had so many things happening there, right? It was the first, like, internet, or it, not even the first, but it was the internet yeah. bust. I don't think we're going to bust this time. I think we're okay. Um, so I had to go to work. I had to get a job. I didn't have a business. Uh, I didn't have any money. And uh, a friend of mine had a, a, a clothing business that was becoming very successful. And he asked me, um, I used to spend a lot of time in Europe. And so he asked me if uh, I could help him launch it internationally. Mm. 
And I thought, well, I can't go to work for somebody, but he was one of my best friends. And so he said, why don't you take a trip with me to Europe? I'll pay for it. You don't have a job right now. You got nothing going on. And why don't you see if you like it? And if you like it, maybe you'll do it, right? And I had a background in apparel from working in, you know, retail stores. And so my, and my mom is in that business. And was, so, was this Joie? Yeah. Okay. This was Joie. So I, I went to Europe and I, I really liked what, what I saw. So I started running the international business for Joie. Um, and, you know, this is a perfect example. I was living between here in London and going to Asia a couple times a year. And I had a very good worldview of what was happening in the apparel business. And one day the, the, the founder of Joie called me and said, hey, listen, we have some excess supply, some excess inventory. I really don't want to get rid of it in America because my brand isn't really doing well and it's so small in Europe. Can you, do you have any people who maybe would buy our excess? So let me ask. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was president of Jimmy Choo. So I asked her, I said, do you know anybody who would like maybe buy some of our excess inventory? She said, well, I get calls a lot for people asking for Jimmy Choo. I'll give you their number. You could call them and see. So I started calling around asking these guys, hey, and they, they were like, yeah, we could really use some of your inventory and great prices. So I started selling our excess to people in Europe and Asia and the Middle East. And... Uh, and I saw a huge opportunity there. And Adam, this was under the Joie brand or you were kind of selling it as your own thing? I was selling it for Joie. Um, so Joie would, uh, Joie would make the profits off of that? Yeah. Got you. And did you, did you end up starting to, well, yeah, kind of. Uh, well, did you end up selling any other brands or was it just at that point, was it just Joie? At that point, it was Joie. And then I saw a big opportunity. So I, I decided that I would open a liquidation business. Okay. Because it was at this time when, when this word contemporary, contemporary clothing, mm-hmm. just started. So you had jeans that were $300, right? No like one was really used to that. Yeah, design. You know, it wasn't designer. Right. But it also wasn't the kind of Zara brands. Mm-hmm. So you had the price points that allowed for margin. So it meant that the brands were working into their price structure a margin of error of, call it 15%. Mm-hmm. And if the brands, which were small when I started with them, were $20, $30 million businesses, they all became hundred and hundred fifty million dollar businesses. Okay, well, when you have a hundred million dollar business, you have fifteen percent excess worked into your model. That's enough for me to start a nice liquidation business. Right. What you mean by that was you were working with different types of retailers to essentially liquidate their ex- excess inventory. No, I was working with brands. Oh, you were working. With, okay, I brands. was buying the excess from the brands. Okay, and then I was selling it to off price retailers all over the world. So kind of the the TJ Maxx's, Lowman's, yeah. Nordstrom Rack mm-hmm. of America. Mm-hmm. These things exist all over the world yeah. in different ways. In Europe, they're mom and pop small places in each little city. In London, it's TK Maxx. In Asia, there's you know a, 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 like 
a different model for it. And in Europe, you know, in, in, in Paris, there's mm-hmm. Vent Privé, right? So was this business what eventually became Hot Look? So, so we, what happened was I had this liquidation business. I had all of this supply in a warehouse. I had retailers that were coming to my showroom and buying it from me. I had all these amazing relationships and all the brands. I said to them, listen, I basically work for you. I'll be transparent with you. Let me buy your supply and I'll tell you where it's going, when it's going and how much it's going to be. I want you to know everything that's happening with your brand because that's all you really have is that label inside that shirt, Mm -hmm. right? No one cares about that shirt after the season, but they care about that label. So I want to be transparent with you. I ask you not to go around me and sell to my retailers and we'll have a great relationship. So I ended up having... Diane von Furstenberg and Catherine Melandrino and Robert Rodriguez and Rock and Republic and Joe's Jeans and Ella Moss and Splendid and Seven and the, all those guys who all the owners of those brands are friends of mine. And I ended up doing liquidation for all of them. And when I had their goods in my warehouse, I wanted to find a way to make more margin. And so I started thinking about where there were groups of women who had disposable income and Beverly Hills sororities interesting because the brands one the girls had disposable income they're in college they want a nice outfit but they can't afford to go buy it at you know Neiman's and Barney's and Saks and two these brands wanted that customer Right. They know that when that student graduates and is in the workforce... They can afford that brand. They can afford it at full price. And they wanted to engage and initiate that person into their brand at an early stage and keep them. So you were kind of also acting as a sales and marketing team in a way for these brands. Obviously, you're making money, but you're also giving them more exposure to an audience that they couldn't reach. That's what they loved about it. Everybody wanted Diane von Furstenberg dresses. It wasn't that hard for her to sell them, but she was trying to use the goods in a way that enabled her to get more out of it than just making it disappear. Adam, why couldn't they do this themselves? I mean, obviously, it seemed as though you were very, you know, strong in your negotiation or strong in your persuasion of, you know, don't go around me. I'm, I'm handling this. I'm, I, I know what I'm doing. But why were they okay with that? Well, it's running another business. And anybody who's ever run a business knows, I don't care if you're running a lemonade stand or if you're running Tesla, you're still running a business, right? So you, their business was growing. All these guys are growing. And the apparel business is very hard, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to predict what somebody's going to like at nine months to a year from now. Make samples. Get them ready. Go show them to all the stores, get orders, get those orders in, get the production going, have production facilities all over the world making your goods, get your goods in, get them into the the warehouse, ship them to the stores, and then have merchandisers go out and make sure that the stores are displaying them correctly and then selling those goods. That keeps you busy. So getting rid of their excess was just something they needed to go away and they work in the dilution on the margin of those goods into the pricing of what they're pricing their goods for. So they just wanted to go away and they wanted someone else to deal with it that they could trust. Gotcha. 
So how were you sell, how are you connecting with the buyers? What kind of different mediums were you using? Was it all, all online? Or did you have like a No, this is, this is 2005, yeah. 2006. Yeah. This is no online. Yeah. So when I went to the sororities, I started doing basically trunk shows. Mm-hmm. So I would have teams go out to the sororities with literally dresses, right? They would have Diane and Seven and Rock and Republic and Joe's Jeans. And I would go out to the sorority with like a trunk of clothes and we would sell it at a discount, but still more than I was getting by shipping it to the, the retailers. And so one day um, I looked at the calendar and I said, where, what, what stores? And it was successful, right? It was doing very well, but there was a lot of friction. The stuff was coming in and out of the warehouse. I had to have credit card machines and teams going to the schools. And then, you know, you got to go to all the different schools and there, it, 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 there's a lot of friction. So I went to a sale. I saw there was a sale at USC. And I took my friend, Sean, the founder of Joie. And I said, let's go to, you know, this sale. So we, we go down and, and it's at like, you know, the, 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 the Truesdale, cool, the cool Truesdale girl Parkway, sorority. Yeah. AE Pie. And so I go with Sean and we're, you know, my team is there and they're, they're selling this stuff. And, and the, the president of the, the sorority says to me, Hey, you know, we have X amount of chapters. We would love to be able to do this with all of our chapters, not just USC. We want to go to Arizona. We want to go to Colorado. We want to go here. We want to go there. You know, we're nationwide. And I said, Oh God, that's a lot of friction, right? putting girls on airplanes and I was just doing places they could drive. Yeah. You know, there's enough schools in California. Right. And we're, we're good. So I went back to my office and I started thinking about it and I'm like, how can I do this? And it was 2007. I mean, there was, there was a couple guys doing a little bit of business online. Not a lot of guys. And so I said, you know, I need to put this online and I need to build a a private club for these girls and let the girls tell the other sororities about it. And they'll have a username and password and they can go in because the brands didn't want their stuff online at that point because it could be detrimental to them. Right. Selling it at a discount. So I hired this guy and I, I built a front end that I plugged into my um, warehouse management system so I could see the supply. And what I was doing is selling as much as I could and then whatever I wasn't selling, I already had orders for the stuff from the retailers, right? The discount retailers I would ship out there. So I started building this thing. I had this one guy in the corner of my office and people would come by, like the president of Lowman's and the, the president of... Um, TJ Maxx and they would come to my office and they would you know be buying their stuff and they say what does that guy do I see I'm building this thing I'm gonna put this thing online for the sororities and I'm gonna let them come buy the 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 inventory online and then like a couple of them pat me on the back good luck kid you know (laughs) and then you know lo and behold later I interviewed both of those people for a job right (laughs) with me um, to work at Whole Look. Yeah, and, and I actually ended up hiring a lot of people from the off-price world. Um, and we built the site. And, and in December of... Or, so in November of 2007, 
there was this thing called Daily Candy. Um, Danny Levy, um, I knew through a friend, and I asked her, I saw it was a bigger opportunity. I was like, M- maybe we should go a little broader than just the sororities. You know? So I um, asked, I had no money to do any marketing. I asked um, Danny Levy if she could write a little thing about us, non-paid. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, she wrote a thing, and first day I got 15,000 members. Wow. 15,000 members. 15,000 members. I didn't even have a site uh, running yet. Just, and, a, just these, a login. These are paid members or they're just... No. No. No, but they gave me their email Got address it. and asked for an email. Okay. Wow. So this is 2007, right? So it's not today where like everyone knows no, and they're yeah. guarding their, their inbox, right? Yeah. This is 2007. Your inbox was like your mom and like people yeah. you work with and like your friends, right? That was it. There was no marketing coming to your inbox. And so they were giving us this info. Must have been really bought into the vision of, of what it was, right? Like to, to go that length and sign up when it wasn't even the norm to do that back then. Yeah, it was like a cute little splash page that said, you know, you want great brands at great prices, give us your email address. Like literally that was it. And um, we launched the first week of uh, December 2017. I was, we were, we, I was pushing everybody. I'm like, we need to get this thing launched before Christmas. I wanted to launch before Thanksgiving. We couldn't get it launched. Kept breaking. You know, we were building it ourselves. I had, it was me and four other people in literally a, a broken down office in downtown LA. No heat, no air. Um, you know, slab floor, a server in the back, right? And there was no cloud. We didn't have that. <laughs> no luxury like that. And I, and like if we turned on too many of the the window ACs, we'd crash. we'd yeah. crash all the power. So we had to be careful because if they crashed, the servers would crash. Right? We needed the servers to be up. So you're just like sweating building the damn website. It was cold then. Oh, it was cold it was like December. <laughs> but I remember the night. Like, we all were there all night long. I remember like four in the morning. We're in downtown. This is not downtown yeah, today. This, this is, is downtown, downtown ten, 10 years, years ago. <laughs> and you know it, there was you know homeless people right, everywhere. everywhere. It was yeah. dangerous down there. And um, we, we, we were so hungry, but there was nothing open. It was like four in the morning. So I sent a guy down. Dirty tacos. No, AM, PM for Monster oh, and chips, right? I mean, God. that's literally what we... And, and we launched the site, right? Um, December 7th, 2007. And, uh, and our first event did $50,000. Wow. And I said, looked around everybody and I said, I think we're onto something here. <laughs> Um, and by March, and Guilt Group right. launched simultaneous. Well, but we didn't know about them. They didn't know about us. They had raised $20 million, right? Or uh, they had raised, at that point, $5 million from Sequoia. I was using all of my own money. So you didn't raise any venture capital at the time? No. No. I didn't even know what that meant. So I had, it was, we had an existing business. So I had infrastructure, right. I had warehousing, I had supply, I had, you know, lights, and we had money in the bank um, from that business. But we were using it all to launch the business, and we raised a friends and family round. We didn't do uh, we didn't do any paid marketing for the first eighteen months of the business, not one dollar. We didn't have any money. It was all PR related and friends and. 
And I, I was speaking with someone yesterday. I, I'm, I'm looking to, to start something new. And as I, as I look around at the marketing landscape, there's nothing new. I haven't seen a fresh idea because everything that these guys are doing, they're just doing things we were doing on steroids. We were using different platforms than they were. So I was hiring girls that were doing these videos, haul videos they were called then, on YouTube. Right? Mm-hmm. There was no Instagram. There was no Snapchat. Yeah. Right? We, we, it was almost were, like was, around the time Facebook, Facebook, but barely. Barely. MySpace more so maybe. MySpace was just kind of hitting the herd, yeah. hitting the stuff. And I know those guys very well. We were all doing stuff together. And, you know, yes, we were doing some marketing with them, but we, we were try- testing things, right? And I would hire these the girls who are today very well-known um, social influencers. I would pay them 50000 a year. To Not do bad. things for us now, these girls get you know fifty thousand a post, and because you had seen like the traction that you'd got from Daily Candy, and it was like, yeah, this is this is where where my demographic is. How it came about was I I used to just search my company name in every available search. So of course Google, you know, but we were playing the Google game a little bit, but I was spending like. $24,000 a month. Mm. Not, I couldn't afford even $1,000 a day, right? $800 a day is what mm. we were spending. And I would search our name, and when I would search us on YouTube, all these videos came up that we didn't do. And I, I was like, what are all these? And so there were these girls that were buying things from us. We weren't giving them anything. And they were... Opening the boxes, the showing them their their viewers what they got, right? Um, haul videos, right? Yeah. So um, I think they have a, a, a different name now, but the and and I would see two hundred thousand views, four hundred thousand views, and I oh, who are these girls? We can bring them in. I want to meet them. We had these girls. We flew some people in from Texas. We flew these other girls in from like I don't know somewhere in the Midwest. I, said, I want to meet these people. I want to understand what's going on. And I met them all. And I said, how about this? You can say whatever you want. I will not, we will not tell you what to say, but I'm going to give you product to review that we're going to sell. You can say it's disgusting. You can say you hate it. You can say it doesn't fit. You can say it's great. You can say whatever you want, but we're just going to say review this instead of you choosing that's the only thing that we did and and you know we would we would give them services and things like that but uh and they would and sometimes they would review and say this stuff is terrible stuff that we were selling that stuff would sell even better <laughs> so adam you know this is something that's obviously growing and you see that you know you're headed towards this successful kind of like growth um do you grow the team? You know, what's what, what do you do to, you know, make it into the $100 million company, you know, plus that it became? Yeah, so it's, um, um, we, so our first year in business, I mean, I don't know if it's out there in the press, but we did like $12 million. 
So that, that's a real business after a first year, right? Um, today, look is you know I mean I think Nordson publishes well well north of a billion dollar business, right? Um, and so we just are, are hiring team as fast as possible, and so as we're 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 throwing resources at growth somewhere, and then I took some VC money. Um, and so we raised some capital from um, Insight Ventures out of New York. And we used that money to hire a team. And when we finally had some capital, I sat down with my, my president of my company and I said to him, okay, this is when we start running the company and it stops running us. We need to slow down the growth here for a second because I knew where the levers were. I could pull any lever I wanted to make more revenue, less profit, whatever we needed to do, we, we got really good at it. And we were different than our, our East Coast rival, which was we were running a business to make money. They were running a business to grow. So guilt was always bigger than us until you know the, the rubber hit the road, right? Because they were spending as much as possible on marketing to grow the top line. And they were reckless and they did not think about the bottom line. They were not building a solid foundation for a company. And our entire goal was, okay, if I turned off the spout today, could we be making money tomorrow? And that was always what we were focused on. And so we built a very solid business. And when Nordstrom came along, and we, we met with everybody was interested in what we were doing. You know, Amazon, Bezos, Flume. This, this is just a few years after you launched, right? Oh, I sold it at the to the day, third, the end of the third year. Three years. Three years. Exactly three years. Exactly three years. So all these all these folks are approaching you. What are you, what are you thinking at that time? It's like, holy shit, what's going on? So what I'm thinking is... Okay, if you're serious, we'll get into discussions with you. Otherwise, we just don't have the bandwidth to even entertain these discussions. Like, if you want to know about our business, uh, uh, great. You know, I'll send somebody over there. They'll tell you. Because I could give them the roadmap and they wouldn't have been able to do it, right? It It was hard. What we were doing was hard. I was working 15 hours a day. There was no... I was... I would be one week in LA, one week in New York, every other week for three years. That, that takes a toll on your body because we had offices in both coasts. We had warehouses in both coasts. We, we were growing. At, we were hiring three people a day, right? So we, we, and we were very focused on onboarding procedures for our employees, structure. We were making sure that we could manage our marketing budget to control it, to, to, to know that what our cohort analysis looked like and what different buyers who came in in different uh, ways look like. And, you know, the discount guy who we're getting in because we're giving him a great deal or a woman, what does that look like as, you know, the arc of their lifetime with us? And so it was a science. It became a science for us. And so we were adding on verticals as we went because it couldn't just be women's, right? So then it became women's and it was accessories and then it was, you know, the, the shoes, the bags, all the jewelry, oh, the thing. Men. then men's, then everything for men's. And then we added in kids first and then it was home because we already had the kids customer, right? Mm-hmm. The mom. Mm-hmm. So, and so we, we, were, we were very thoughtful on how we were adding categories 
And the hardest part of these businesses is, you know, great brands at great prices. I could put as many millions of people into a funnel that want, that have demand was what does the supply quotient look like? And what does the exhaust quotient look like? Because that's where all of my competitors failed because all of their profit was sitting in a warehouse. And when I realized that we weren't buying inventory that much, we were actually just selling it for the brands. It was a little different model than mm-hmm. my, my competitors. And when I sat back and looked at the exhaust, I knew how to get rid of it because I had that background. So I was getting rid of our exhaust that we would accumulate through my channels that existed from my business liquidate, right? The, mm-hmm. the liquidation mm-hmm. business. My competitors were just staring at millions and millions of dollars worth of supply building up. And I knew that my network could only handle so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when Nordstrom came a knocking. Adam, as the company grew, naturally you also grew with it. You obviously became, you know, more experienced. You were now doing things such as managing bigger teams. You know, in those three years that you, um, ran Hot Look. How, how do you feel that you grew as not only a person but also as a as a businessman? So that was my business school. Those three years, uh, the the rap when we were raising money was Adam's never done this before, so we're not mm-hmm. going to give you a high valuation. Mm-hmm. I was up against Kevin Ryan, who you know Double Click was his business. His brother was the head of gaming at at Facebook. Right, he had a long list of. of um, Great same double click that Google purchased. Yeah. Yeah. They purchased it from him. Yeah. So he was a, a very successful entrepreneur, had done it before, and he got a very big valuation for that business. I was learning on the job. And I was not afraid to hire people that knew more than I did. And that was the number one biggest thing that made us successful. Everybody that I hired in a C-level position knew how to do their job better than I did. And I trusted them to do it. And I think that's the, the, the thing that all of my, my venture capital guys and my angel investors would say if they came in here was, Adam was okay saying he didn't know how to do something and hiring the team around him that was good at that. So you said Nordstrom comes knocking at your door and you obviously, uh, they acquired Look. Um, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was actually the first time a traditional retailer had purchased an online uh, apparel uh, sales business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on through your mind at that point? So, very exciting times, right? I mean, uh, for me, I had started a few businesses. This one was very successful. Uh, and then I wanted to, to do my tenure. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to be one of those entrepreneurs who sells their business for all this money and just walks away. It was my baby. And, and I did every day. I stayed the, the three years um, that I had signed up for. So I respect the Nordstrom family immensely. They are some of the, the best retailers on the planet. And as a family... 
I've never met a more solid family that says what they're going to do and does what they say, right? They, they are as solid as you can be. And to have them as partners, you know, I sold my company to a 112-year-old business at the time of fam- still run by people with the last name Nordstrom with, you know, the valuation at that point was somewhere, I forget what it was, maybe $8, $10 billion valuation. And I got an education of what corporate America looks like with the greatest guys that you could possibly imagine. My president, who worked with me from six months into the business, he's still there. He runs all online, off-price for Nordstrom today. And we built them NordstromRack.com, which is run by the Look team. Adam, so you had said a little bit earlier that that there were several suitors, essentially, for Look. Uh, why did you end up ultimately going with Nordstrom as, you know, this long-term partner slash, you know, team that's going to come in and, you know, essentially grow the baby that you had brought to life? So there was no more exciting meeting than me and two of my, my head of marketing and, and my president um, going and sitting across the table from Jeff Bezos. Right, so it was you know me and 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 Terry and Greg and Jeff Bezos, Jeff Wilkie, um, I forget the other Jeff's name. They're all named Jeff up there. Um, <laughs> I'm naming my son Jeff after that. For, yeah, for sure. And and we we literally sat in there and explained our business to them. And it, you know, I said at when we walked out of the meeting to my guys, we need to buy Amazon stock. This guy knew our business better than we did. I, this he, is Bezos. Bezos. He shot holes in all the areas that were problematic for us. I mean, he, he, at that point, I said, this is the, the greatest online retailer of all time. Did he have hair at the time? No. <laughs> and, and he had that big laugh, and like, we're all in there. And when he starts laughing, you don't know what to do, right? Are you supposed <laughs> to laugh? Or like, and and he, he really, he liked our business, and they wanted to buy it. They made us an offer. They wanted to buy it. Um, we we had subsequent follow up meetings, and you know eBay was around, and those guys were around. Private equity was around, and we we ultimately decided that we the price wasn't right for us, and the fit wasn't right, and we we took some money from our our, our VC because we needed some capital to keep up with the the, the competitors, and about six months later. Um, through a friendship, we, we the Nordstrom conversations with uh, me and their their banker started up again, and they had we had given them the kind of quick like, hey, you know, this is our business, da, da 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 da, and we never heard from them again. So we thought that those discussions were over, and then they said, you know, look, we're really interested, and I I, I recognized that even more than Amazon. They were the perfect fit for us because they had all of the supply that we needed and they had the exhaust solution, as I told you. These are the two big issues. I could shove more demand into a great brands for great prices portfolio that you could than you could imagine for very inexpensive marketing. But the supply and the exhaust were the ultimate problems of the business and they solved both of those. Yeah. So they acquire you and you remain a CEO for, for a couple of years and then three. You, you step down after three years. Mm-hmm. Why did you step down? Um, I had done what I, what I wanted to do. And as an entrepreneur, 
the corporate environment, as Hotlook became more and more uh, a division and less and less uh, entity owned by Nordstrom, uh, it was it was apparent that it was time for me to go and you know, I wanted to have a baby and like do all that kind of fun stuff and be around the house and and you know I, I kind of had was had worked so hard on so many things I needed a break yeah. personally um, because I I'll say I probably worked even harder and longer hours after I sold the business. Um, because I felt like I owed it to them. They, those guys really did what they said they were going to do. They changed my life forever and my family's life forever. And, and I felt like I owed it to them. So I, I was burnt. Mm -hmm. It was six years of intense growth personally. Yeah. And, and it was time for me just to take a break. Yeah, I mean, you had this quick, quick growth, and you you sold, and um, you know, you're, you're still young at this time. Like, what did you, what have you been up to in the last four years um, since then, and what do you see your future looking like? Will you start another business ever again, or are you kind of just? I know you're advising a lot of companies and inv investor as well. Yeah, I think. Well. First, I was a cliche, right? I went and like trekked Machu Picchu and spent a month in South America and like went to Patagonia and like went and swam with the sharks, uh, you know, off the coast of Papua New Guinea and like I did all of those things that I never really had time to do. Right? My vacations were two days, right? I had a weekend because I worked pretty much every weekend, but I would go and 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 you know, as my fiance would say at the time, like, why are we even going on vacation? You worked the entire time. It takes you three days to calm down. And we're here for five days. And then you're like, I got to start seeing what's going on because you're gearing up to go back to work. It's like we have 48 hours of fun, right? So why <laughs> why do we do this? And so I, I, I came out of that. And after like kind of doing all that stuff that I really wanted to do, I started working with young entrepreneurs and, and angel investing in some things and and that was all right, but I think for me, I miss the the being in the trenches. I like it. I, I, I like going to work every day, and I like strategizing. I like thinking about the business, and, and I like the competition. So after that time, you know, what did you decide to do? Is that, you know, what's the next move for you, or is there is there a next move? Yeah, so you know, you get you you get a little jaded, right? So you you have to then weigh the risk and the reward, and the risk and the reward doesn't come down to finances, then, right? So the risk and the reward is time, right? Because I have X amount of time, I you know love hanging out with my kid, and every minute that I go to work, I don't have to hang out with him. Right. And so that's where the risk and the reward balance is. So I've just he's got an age now where he's going to start to go to school. And so, like, mm -hmm. he won't be around as much. So now I really am thinking about, OK, I have some bandwidth uh, and I have some some ideas of things that I, I are in my notebook that I've been kicking around for years. And and I'm ready to start putting those ideas into the diligence mode. So I've done summer in the diligence mode 
And once I sink my teeth into something, like I said earlier, I'm just looking at this marketing machine. And if, if it's not a very unique idea that's going to have some viral um, component to it, just fighting the the Google kind of you know agency now now that you know that's all agencies now mm-hmm. right you don't even need to build in house anymore mm-hmm. you got agencies that manage your 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 um, Instagram you got agencies that manage your Facebook agents they they all have now geared their business towards that well that that takes so much capital mm-hmm. and a- am I excited about doing that? Just to make more money? No. Changing the way something is done or finding a unique idea that people want to talk about is what I'm after. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what excites me. Just going to work to make more money is not on the top of my list of things to do. Well, Adam, I think we've had a great, great conversation with you. And, you know, I was super excited to not only, you know, meet with you and learn your story. And now that I have, it's just I see, I see why you did things, and clearly, you know, a lot of the time, Patrick and I have these conversations. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we sit down with, it's usually never about the money. The money is kind of just like that extra reward that comes along with it. But it's always about how can we innovate, how can we solve a problem, you know, how can we, you know, create something that's going to last beyond just us, and it's going to, it's, it's more, it's, it's bigger than just one person. So I think that's something that, you know, we learned from you today, and hopefully that's something that our listeners, you know, take away as well. So we thank you for your time, and, you know, we wish you the best of success in the next project or projects that you end up, you know, starting. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you.